Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 5. We're going to take up two topics today. At the end of chapter 5, in the last audio, we discussed the healing of the paralytic let down through the roof. And in this audio, we're going to take up the call of Matthew, that's Levi, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, and the party he gave in honor of Jesus. And then, after that, we're going to discuss the controversy between John the Baptist disciples and Jesus' disciples over fasting. So we'll start in Luke 5, verse 27 through 32, the call of Matthew. Now this call of Matthew is discussed thoroughly in Mark 2, 13 through 17, and Matthew 9, 9 through 13. So I'm going to splice in my discussion of Matthew 9, 9 through 13 right here, and it will cover Luke's, Luke's version of the call of Matthew quite well. The passages are fairly close to each other. So the splice starts now. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. From there, he, I guess he was at Peter's house at Capernaum, and he left there. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he, Matthew, got up and followed him, followed Jesus. So here we have the calling of Matthew, the author of our gospel here. Now Matthew had another name. He was also called Levi, the son of Alphaeus, in Mark and Luke in the parallel gospels. Why did Mark and Luke not call him Matthew? Well, perhaps Levi, the son of Alphaeus, is not a well-known name, not Matthew's most commonly known name, and they were trying to conceal the former disreputable life of Matthew by calling him Levi, the son of Alphaeus, so nobody knew he's the former tax collector, which might have exposed him to a great deal of content. As you know, tax collectors were local Jews who were hired by the Roman government to squeeze the Jews out of every dime, every shekel that they could, and they wanted a certain percentage, and anything over that was their feet, and there was no limit on it. They just would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and get as much as they could. They were contemptible human beings. They were working for an occupying power, and they were crooked, and they were greedy. And so Matthew and, uh, excuse me, Mark and Luke probably just covered up the fact of who they were referring to when they referred to Matthew. They called him Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew, however, uses his real name. He mentions his disreputable occupation of tax collector, 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 and he might have done that. What's a possible reason to make his conversion even more remarkable? Because by golly, it's like an IRS agent getting saved. I mean, how often do you hear that? An IRS agent is a Christian? Please, you're kidding me. And that's what people would say about Matthew being uh, saved. Uh, in chapter 10, the next chapter, verse 3, Matthew refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector. He calls himself by what he was. All right, I noticed that Adam Clark said that this man, Matthew, the tax collector, is generally supposed to be the author of the Gospel of Matthew. I guess some people might have a doubt about it. I don't. I'm assuming he wrote the, the Gospel. The word Matthew means gift in Syriac or gift of the Lord, which is a nice name because he was a gift of the Lord. He's given us a lot in his Gospel. Now, notice that when he was called by Jesus, he got up immediately without consulting anyone. He says, yes, I'm going. And this shows the incredible power of his call. In Luke 5, verse 28, we read this, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Leaving everything behind, his business, his job, his work, his life, his schedule, his dreams, his vision, everything. 
And that, my friends, is what it takes to follow Jesus. Well, I got to bury my, I got to take care of family obligations. I got a business. I got to do this. I got to do that. Excuses, excuses, excuses. You want to be a disciple of Jesus, you better give up everything, like Matthew, leave everything behind, especially when what you're doing is not exactly ethical and God-honoring. So he left from there, which was uh, in Capernaum, and went to the tax office, wherever that was. Now, it was probably, well, there's two options. It could have been a toll house or a booth in which Matthew sat collecting a ferry tax, a local tax, uh, that Capernaum or put on ferries that were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown came up with that option. Or it could have been a place to collect taxes levied by the Romans or the Jews, not just for ferries crossing the Sea of Galilee, but for people walking on an international road which ran through Damascus, through Capernaum, to the Mediterranean coast, and down the coast of the Mediterranean to Egypt. So and this, is, this is the NIV Study Bible's op, uh, solution here, or suggestion as to what that tax office was. Now, this is interesting that Jesus set up his house on an international road. I never realized that. I thought it was some out-of-the-way village. No, it was on a road where there was a bunch of ancient Near Eastern commerce going by, which shows that Jesus probably was thinking strategically. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 11 says this, While he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the house, this is in Matthew's house, remember when you ate in the uh, Near East back then, you ate by lying down on your side. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners, notice how tax collectors are hooked right up with sinners, not much difference. They, they were looked at as sinners in the eyes of everybody. And Matthew had invited a bunch of sinners, just generic sinners. They were probably, what, prostitutes, pimps, who knows, embezzlers. I don't know who they were, but they were some bad guys and tax collectors. They were probably his friends, Matthew's friends. So this was a, a feast of disreputable people. They came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Can you imagine what these fishermen thought as they sat down with the, with the Messiah to eat with a bunch of scumbags? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, first of all, we, I, I just finished saying rapists and murderers and such for sinners. It might not have been that. It might have just been sinners in the eyes of the Jews because a Jew thought a sinner was anybody who didn't keep the law of Moses. So if you got a nice moral Gentile person in there who didn't eat shrimp, he would be called a sinner because he wasn't keeping the law of Moses. I would be called a sinner because I don't, I plant uh, tomato seeds and cucumber seeds in the garden together. My shirts have cotton and linen intertwined together and so forth because I don't follow the law of Moses, so therefore I'd be a sinner, even though I'm acting like Mother Teresa and John the Baptist combined. So, but at any rate, the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus was doing. Again, everything Jesus did, he did it, he went out of his way to get in the, the face of the Pharisees. He hated that religious tradition of the Pharisees. He hated that tradition which totally abrogated the law of Moses and covered it up and covered up the goodness of God and the love of God. And once again, he was challenged when he did this by this these Pharisees. Now, I mentioned that the Pharisees looked at tax collectors as sinners. This is how bad sinners were looked at in Jewish society. This is from the NIV Study Bible on Mark 2, verse 16. Tax collectors could not serve as a witness in court. They could not be a judge. They were expelled from the synagogue, and their disgrace extended even to their families. Even if you're married to a Pharisee, if your dad's a Pharisee, you go to the local synagogue school, try to learn some Bible, try to learn some Hebrew scriptures, and somebody says, your father's a what? He's a tax collector? Get out of here. They were hated intensely. Notice that John the Baptist didn't say tax collecting was sinful, but 
In other words, he allowed for the possibility that you could have honesty. He wanted honesty within the profession, even if the profession wasn't of great reputation. That reminds me one time I knew a Christian, heard of a Christian. He was going to a Baptist church, and Baptist churches in the South tend to be a little bit anti-beer. And so this Christian was getting a lot of grief because he was driving a beer truck. They should have let him alone. There's nothing wrong with driving a beer truck. Now, I will say this. Today's millennial Christians talk about beer like it was the Holy Spirit. Oh, I drank a craft, and I drank about ten of them. See how free I am? They've gone to the other extreme. You know, reform pub cast. Please. There's nothing inherently holy about beer. There's nothing inherently sinful about beer, but there's nothing inherently holy about it either. All right. This party that, Je- that Levi, that Matthew is throwing for Jesus here that we're reading about, we find it out in Luke verse chapter 5, verse 29, was a grand banquet. It wasn't just a little get-together. It was a grand banquet. Luke 5, 29 in Holman Christian Study Bible. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. There was a large crowd of tax collectors, so this was a big deal. Now, Matthew did mention that little fact, that great feast that he threw, probably from a sense of modesty, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, but it was. It was a big deal. Now, you notice that, once again... When Jesus was healing the paralytic left down through the roof, the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled amongst themselves. Here, at the party, they went to Jesus' disciples. says, why does your teacher eat with collectors and sinners? But they didn't go to Jesus. They were scared to go to Jesus. He had totally intimidated them. Why had they done that? Well, it was hard to argue with a man who had just healed a paralytic, read the thoughts of minds, if indeed he had read the thoughts of the minds that they thought he was blaspheming. He had destroyed every argument that was ever brought up against him. He was he said he had authority to forgive sins on earth and backed it up. No, they're not going to argue with Jesus. He'd whip them. He always did. He never failed to whip a Pharisee in open debate. That's why I love watching Jesus deal with these religious snoots, these religious hypocrites. The Pharisees probably thought they could tangle up the disciples easier than Jesus, and I think they were probably right. I mentioned that thing about sinners not being what we would normally call sinners, but just somebody who didn't follow the law. The NIV actually takes that interpretation and puts quotation marks, air quotes, around sinners. In other words, alleged sinners, although they're not really sinners. They were sinners only in the sense the Jews made of them. These tax collectors were ranked with murderers and thieves, by the way. So (laughs) they really were considered sinners. They were really bad sinners. They were considered such sinners that it was considered perfectly legal and just and moral to falsely swear to them. How much money do you have? I'm a poor man. I don't have anything. I didn't make any money this year. You could do that. You could swear by the golden, the altar in Jerusalem probably and get away with it. Gentiles did the same thing too, by the way. These people were thugs. So the term sinner also included evil and immoral people as well as moral people who refused to follow Moses. I need to make that clear. I said it could probably refer to Gentiles who ate shrimp and think people like that. But it also, it did do that, but it also included evil and moral people, people we would call sinners. It was forbidden to eat with such sinners, by the way, and there Jesus is with his disciples eat with them. So they broke the Pharisaical law as they, as Jesus spent half of his time doing. Now you notice that these Pharisees, they asked the disciples, why is your teacher eating with these sinners? They weren't concerned for the salvation of the tax officials and these sinners, whoever they were. They weren't concerned about the sinner's souls. They weren't concerned about anything. Just the law, the law, the traditions of men. (laughs) And by the way, there's a little Pharisee in all of us. Our traditions, our denomination, our theology sometimes takes a little bit higher precedence than our concern for human beings. Let's go to Matthew 9, verses 12 through 13. But when he heard this, he said, those 
who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. He's referring to these sinners. They they aren't well. They're morally sick. They're sinful, and they need a doctor to heal them of their sins. And of course, Jesus was he was the doctor. So then Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And go and learn is a common phrase the rabbinic teachers would use. Go and learn what this saying means. So he's the, Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, the great teachers of Israel, he's using the same language that they often use when they tell people that know less than they do, go and learn. He's telling them, go and learn. He's completely above them. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. And, of course, the righteous there is talking about people who keep the mosaic. Well, actually, in their terminology, it meant keeping the traditions of the Pharisees. And Jesus said, I didn't, I'm a, I didn't come to call the, these people, the self-righteous we might call them. I didn't, I didn't, that's not who I'm after. I'm after people who are willing to admit that they are sinners. And, of course, the number one thing when you witness to people, you've got to convince people that they're sinners. And I have discovered that that's not a hard thing to do. I, I don't know, maybe it's just because mostly I'm witness to Chinese people. And they don't have any problem admitting that. They say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I know it. I, very rarely. I've never found one of them that would say, no, I'm not a sinner. If, if I have somebody hesitate, say, you ever lie to your mother? Or they all lie to their mother. All of them. I say, you ever lied? And that's the end of that story. I say, well, then you're a sinner. So Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The sacrifice would be, would be keeping the Mosaic law, not just the traditions of the Pharisees, but actually the Mosaic law. Uh, and it doesn't mean he doesn't want them to sacrifice. God set up the sacrificial system, and Jesus, Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow the law of Moses, as we know from Matthew 5. But if you put the merely, a merely after that, it makes sense. I desire mercy and not merely sacrifice. In other words, he's looking more for more than just rote obedience to religious ritual, as meaningful as that ritual might be. He's looking for you to care about people. Mercy. I desire mercy. And these sinners, they need me, and I'm going to minister to them, and I don't give a flying frip about what your pharisaical traditions are. That verse is easy to interpret. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. It sounds like it means call the righteous into ministry or into salvation. The parallel passages have call to repentance. Luke, or the parallel passages in Luke 5:32. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's not just calling them in general. He's calling them to repent. So although Jesus loved to be with sinners, and he didn't mind the social blowback he got from eating with sinners, he didn't mind that. But he told them, you're sinners. Just like when he told that woman caught in adultery, I'm with you, lady. But I want to tell you, I don't want you to sin anymore. Go and sin no more. So nothing wrong with eating with sinners as long as you somehow during the conversation let them know that they're sinners. Otherwise, all you're doing is participating in their sin. And that's a fine line, as I'm sure you've run into before in your Christian life. All right, I'm returning from my splice of Matthew. And we are now going to continue in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to the end of the chapter in verse 39. We just talked about the call of Matthew. And Matthew, of course, gave a feast. And now Jesus, in three parables, is going to defend his disciples for feasting instead of fasting, which I guess puts it in a logical place, considering that the last story we talked about was Matthew giving a feast. Now, the three parables are the bride and the bridegroom, the new cloth on, patched on the old cloth, and the new wineskins. 
We're going to discuss that. Well, I've already discussed that in Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. So I'm going to splice that in and we'll finish, thereby be finished with Luke chapter 5. The splice begins now. Starting with verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? This is John the Baptist, of course. His disciples were still following John. In fact, they were up there around the Galilee region, even though John was in the south. And they were still following John, even though John was still in prison, according to John Gill and according to the NIV Study Bible. John's still in prison. Disciples are still baptizing in, for repentance. Now, here's some options as to why John's disciples were fasting, according to the NIV Study Bible. First, they were mourning because John was in prison. Maybe so. Or it could be, since they were preaching repentance, fasting was an expression of repentance. That could be, too. Or it could be both. Now, what was their motives? Why did the disciples come to Jesus to ask this question? Well, it could be that they were offended that Jesus, Jesus would be having a big feast. From this, uh, uh, The context of this, Matthew, in, in the first part of chapter 9, gave a big feast with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees could have been, excuse me, John's disciples could have been offended that Jesus would be having a big feast while their master was in jail. That's John Gill's idea. It could be that the Pharisees had actually challenged the followers of John on this point. How come you're fasting, and but the disciples of Jesus are not fasting? Shame, shame, shame. Well, it's hard to know exactly why they came to Jesus with that question, and it's also not clear with which tone the question was spoken in. Was it a mere inquiry? Gee, Jesus, why is it that you guys aren't fasting, that your disciples aren't fasting? Or, as John Gill says, maybe it was reproof. John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? What's the matter with you? In other words, there might be a little bit of reproach there. Of course, I, I can't imagine people reproaching Jesus too much. You know, I mean, after all, he was the Messiah, and people were flocking to him by the scadzillions, and he was healing people all over the place. So maybe John Gill is wrong about that. Maybe it was just an inquiry, but it was an honest inquiry. Why not? Now, the fast that, that the disciples of John were talking about were not public fast enjoined by the law of Moses. It was actually just one of those, yeah, the, the Day of Atonement. But the boy, did the rabbis have private fast everywhere. For example, every Monday and Thursday, uh, they fasted. Luke 18, 12 references this in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisees, where the tax collector said he was a sinner, and the Pharisees stood up and boasted about how what a great, righteous person he was. And in that boast, he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, and I fast twice a week. So fasting was a big deal with the Pharisees. In fact, if there was no rain on the 17th of Marcusavon, this is a day in a month in October, a day in October, then they scheduled a three-day private fast. If there was any sort of unpleasant occasion, pestilence, famine, war, sieges, or floods, they passed it after the tragedy. If they had a dream, they needed to have a fast to interpret the dream. Or maybe to avoid an ill omen in a dream. They needed to fast to get rid of the bad thing that was going to happen to them if they dreamed. Or they might fast so that they might have good dreams. John Gill says it is almost incredible what frequent fasting some of the rabbis exercised themselves with on every insignificant occasion. So it was certainly no shame that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting like the rabbis. After all, the law only required it on the Day of Atonement. Now... Let's look at the development of fasting, according to the NIV Study Bible. As I said, the Mosaic Law only required, required fasting on the Day of Atonement. And then after the Babylonian exile, the Jews added some four-yearly fast. I think mainly, uh, at least one of them was because of the, the day, what is it, the 8th of Ab, I think it is, when, uh, or Ab, 
when the Babylonians wiped out Jerusalem in 586, 587-586 B.C. But anyway, there were four yearly fasts that were added to the to the fast on the Day of Atonement. So that's not very much. By the time we get down to Jesus' time, however, they were fasting twice a week. Now, what about the application today? A lot of Christians like to fast, and I always say, oh, there's nothing wrong with fasting. We're going to see here in a minute that Jesus said uh, when the bridegroom is taken away, then you can fast, but while the groom is with them, why do you fast? It's a, it's a festive time, and G- even though Jesus isn't with us today, his Holy Spirit is, so do we need to fast? Well, there's so many testimonies of the spiritual good it's done, and I've done it myself, and it does. When you get hungry, and then all of a sudden you start thinking about God instead of your stomach, it's amazing. You do get closer to God. I've got nothing wrong with fasting, but it is not required. We should never, ever require that of a Christian. It's an optional thing, a matter of freedom. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15 says this, Jesus said to them, to John's disciples, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? Of course, the wedding guests are... Jesus' disciples, and the groom is Jesus. And as a matter of fact, the wedding guest could not be sad. It's interesting that the Jewish law, the rabbi's law, exempted the friend of the bridegroom from many obligations, uh, some of which obligations could be interpreted as, as being somewhat sad or somewhat rigorous, somewhat not joyous. For example, uh, the friend of the bridegroom, according to law, could not stay in a booth at the Feast of Tabernacles because you can't be festive in a booth. This is from John Gill, the rabbinic expert. The bridegroom didn't have to engage in prayer. He didn't have, the, excuse me, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, didn't have to engage in prayer. He didn't have to wear phylacteries. He didn't have to fast. He didn't have to mourn. So the Pharisees themselves had the answer to their own question because the bridegroom was there, Jesus. The wedding guests were there, the disciples. What's the point of being sad? This is a time of joy, not fasting. Now, when he says when the time will come when the groom will be taken away, that's, of course, referring to his crucifixion. Then they will fast because fasting is, a, is usually done when you're mourning. And, of course, the disciples would be mourning for those three days when he was taken away from them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 16 through 17. Changing the subject here. Jesus says, No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. I said it's a change of subject. You know, there could be a connection. The fasting regime of the Pharisees referring to the old garment and the old wineskins, and there's no point in that because we're at a time of joy now. New clothes, new wine. We don't want to put that back into that old fasting system of the of the Pharisees. That very well could be. But at any rate, this is a very easy to understand parable and it's used a lot. When it says wine skins, it's, uh, they used goat skins were used to hold wine. And if you put new wine in a new goat skin, the wine would ferment, bubble up, let out oxygen. And as the gases expand, the, the goat skin, since it was new, it would expand too. But if you put that new wine into an old goat skin, and the goat skin had already expanded because it was an old goat skin, it would not be able to expand anymore. So when the gases from the fermenting wine started expanding, it would pop the goat skin and break it. And then, of course, after the goat skin was broken, the wine would spill. Now, what this analogy was that Jesus was making is he's saying that his kingdom was so new it couldn't fit into the old Pharisaic forms, the rabbinic Phariseeism that was ruling the day. And that's pretty obvious. If you look at Phariseeism pretty long, you realize this has nothing to do with Jesus. And he gives another metaphor, which is exactly the same, an old garment. If you 
take an old garment which is already stretched out and you put a new patch on the old garment, the new patch is going to shrink because it's new. Well, it's going to shrink and pull away from the threads that have attached it to the old garment. The old garment's not going to shrink with it because it's already shrunk. Shrunk as much as it's going to shrink. It's the same, but this point is the same. The Pharisees are old. Jesus' kingdom is new. So forget it, guys. Forget the Pharisees. Look into my kingdom. The Pharisees focused on their traditions, the traditions of their elders. They took away from the commandments of God. They made void the commandments of God. They were making the Jewish religion worse and worse and worse. All right, I'm back from my splice now. We're back in Luke 5. We just finished up Luke chapter 5. The next audio, we're going to skip over a feast in Jerusalem, which was possibly the Passover feast as Jesus goes down to Jerusalem and heals a lame man on the Sabbath and defends this action to the Pharisees at a great discourse. This is in John 5, 1 through 47. He comes back from, and this, of course, is according to A.T. Robertson's Harmony. Jesus comes back from the feast, heading back to Galilee. Probably on the way back from Jerusalem, he gets into a, another Sabbath controversy with the disciples when the disciples pluck ears of grain in the fields. We'll take that up in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 5 in the next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.